there's two readings this evening from Mark's Gospel. First one, chapter 9, starting at verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And moving on to chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to the Lord's word, let's pray. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Father, we are able to draw near to you uh, precisely because your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came from the majesty of heaven to the humility of a stable and then to the deeper humility still of a cross, sacrificed himself to serve people like us, that we might be adopted into your family and drawn close to you. Father, we pray we'd marvel again at these truths. These truths would grasp our hearts, warm them. And as you grasp our hearts, may you too grasp our lives. And may uh, the grace that you have poured out abundantly on us flow in and through us to others in the way we uh, respond to others in the way we engage with others, in the way we serve, in the way we love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible um, often confronts us, doesn't it, with passages that cause us to ask um, big questions about where it is day-to-day in the hurly-burly of life we look for our significance and our uh, status and our self-worth. It is so often the case, isn't it, that rather than root our identity in, in, in the identity that God has given us, freely given us as his children, so often we find ourselves, or at least I do, running after 
the identity that the world runs after. I find myself trying to build a sense of security, self-worth, whatever you want to call it, significance, on things like my achievements or my role or people's approval of me or disapproval of me or whatever it might be. Status symbols, as the world calls them, because they bring status in the world's eyes. And status is incredibly seductive. For many in our culture, it is status uh, where we find our significant security, self-worth. And we can be tempted to do the same. But if we do that, it seems to me, we will be inhibited in our ability to love God and to love others as he calls us. We'll be inhibited in our ability to play a full part in the life of God's kingdom. I think we'll be inhibited, to use the particular example we're going to look at in uh, chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, we'll be inhibited in our ability to love others, and particularly to love others who are unlike us, perhaps of a lower uh, status or a different background or whatever it might be, to use the example in Mark 9. And we'll be inhibited because life in God's kingdom involves, as we'll see, sitting loose to status as the world understands it and as the world defines it. Jesus, as uh, Dan was saying, as we saw last week, we're in now beyond chapter 8. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. He's walking with his disciples and he's beginning to re-educate them, to reorientate them to the countercultural cultural nature of his kingdom, this topsy-turvy kingdom, as Dan called it last week. And he's trying to teach them as they walk to Jerusalem what true greatness is and where identity comes from. And he's beginning to challenge their notions of what it means for him to be the Messiah, what kind of Messiah it is that they are following. He's beginning to challenge their notions about how this kingdom that Jesus has spoken about for three years, how it's going to be established and how it's going to be extended. It's a challenge to them, and it's a challenge to us. But as we'll see, I hope, it's a challenge that ultimately brings the peace of living in a kingdom that is one of grace. The peace of living under grace, the freedom of living under grace, and the power to fulfill God's great call to play our part in his kingdom. So join me in verse 33. That's where I want to pick it up. Jesus has just explained again that he is going to Jerusalem to die in the earlier verses. Verse 33, they come to Capernaum. When he, that is Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, that is the disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Why are the disciples quiet? when Jesus asks the question. It's got to be the silence of shame, isn't it? They're ashamed. They're like schoolboys who've been caught, red-handed. It's the kid with the hand in the cookie jar, isn't it? And they're ashamed because, it seems to me, they had been arguing, and in particular because they'd been arguing over who was the greatest. And it seems to me they know, even if they don't yet fully understand why, they know that their talk of greatness is out of step with Jesus and the road he is walking on and the road he wants to lead them on. 
So why are they arguing about greatness? And the answer has got to be that they're still thinking in worldly categories. They're still thinking as the world thinks. They're still looking for identity on the world's terms, a greatness uh, in the world that is how the world conceives of greatness. I'm sure they're thinking about you know, being great in, in, in the spiritual arena. I'm sure they're thinking that. But nevertheless, they're still conceiving of greatness in the spiritual arena in the same way that the world conceives of greatness. I think one of the reasons we see that is, or one of the uh, ways we see that is, is that they clearly, the way they're talking about and setting themselves up for greatness is through self-promotion. Greatness for them is achieved through self-promotion. Otherwise, they wouldn't be arguing, would they? If they're arguing about who's the greatest, they must be putting each, themselves forward and seeking to be great through self-promotion. We see that, of course, in chapter 8, that very famous chapter, Peter's response to Jesus' declaration that he's going to Jerusalem not to ascend a royal throne, which is what the disciples were thinking and what they were hoping. He's going to ascend a criminal's cross. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, that's not the way of greatness. Not as the world conceives of it and not as I conceive of it. Jesus has to take him to one side. You don't, Peter says, you don't go... You gain status on a cross, you lose it. Jesus takes him to one side and says, you're still thinking as the world thinks about greatness, as the world runs after status. You don't yet understand the way of the kingdom. You don't understand how the kingdom's going to be established. You don't yet understand how the kingdom is going to be extended. And therefore you don't understand what greatness actually is. And so verse 35 he sits them down, calls the twelve, uh, and says, anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So, in our world, often, greatness is demonstrated, it is seen by the number of people you have serving you, because we talk about going up in the world. The further up you go, the more people below you. But in God's kingdom, greatness is seen in the number of people you serve. The values of the world are reversed. The road to greatness in God's kingdom is through a humility that is prepared to serve any and all. And that is the way of greatness because it is the way of Christ. It will be, as Jesus is beginning to explain to the disciples, it will be in humble, self-sacrificial service that Jesus will change the world and establish his kingdom. And it will be, Jesus will say, the ongoing self-sacrificial service of his people that Jesus will continue to change the world and extend his kingdom. And to do that, we need to radically rethink what status is. Indeed, like Jesus, we need to gladly set the privileges of status to one side in order to serve. And that is what Philippians 2 is all about. Dan read Philippians 2. Why don't we turn to it, actually? We don't usually cross-reference. But I think it would be helpful at this moment if we did. Because <clears throat> it's such a striking passage. Uh, Philippians 2, which you'll find on page 1179. Uh, God's Electric Power Company is the way I always remember it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians... God's electric power company it works for me <clears throat> in that part of the Bible. Ephesians 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Paul says this, uh, uh, picking up in verse 5. You'll know these words, but let's say them again because they are wonderful. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, 
being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. The road to greatness lies in humility and self-sacrificial service, for that is the way of Christ. And did you notice... Verse 6, it was as one who was supremely secure in, if you like, their God-given identity and status. It was one who knew themselves to be the divine son of God. He didn't need to grasp, as the NIV puts it, for status. In other words, um, sort of take advantage of it or exploit it. You cling to it in that sense. Rather, secure in who he was, secure in his status as the divine son of God, he was able to sit loose to it in that sense, to forego the privileges that come from being the divine son, forego self-promotion and stoop to embrace lowly sinners like me and like you, to welcome people like me and like you, to stoop to offer Friendship to anyone and everyone, regardless of their status. And therefore, to embrace and offer friendship and hospitality and welcome to anyone and everyone, regardless of their status or background or whatever it might be, is a lot like acting like Jesus. And that's what he goes on to say, isn't it? Have a look back in there, we're back in Mark. Verse 36, verse 37. Took a little child, had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I'm sure you'll be aware that the child uh, represents in, uh, in that time and in that culture pretty, pretty much the lowest uh, social status rank So to receive a child would be to welcome a child, to bring a child, to accord significance to a child would be to turn the world's um, status values upside down, to accord importance to the unimportant in that sense. And of course we live in a world that loves to uh, rank people according to uh, various status markers, maybe their background, maybe their looks, maybe their achievements, maybe their positions, maybe their spending power, whatever it might be. And Jesus says here, doesn't he, one of the things he says here is not so in the kingdom. Not so in the kingdom, not so with you. We had no status, of course, to attract Christ to us, to secure a place in his kingdom. It wasn't our background or looks or achievements, moral or otherwise. It wasn't our positions of authority or spending power, whatever it may be, that attracted Christ to us. We are here purely through his act of stooping, purely through his grace. And so he says we are to be people who resist that kind of ranking of people the ranking of people in the way that so often the world ranks people, both within the church and without. 
Greatness lies, says Jesus. One of the ways in which greatness lies is welcoming those who are not viewed as great by our culture. Welcoming those who are perhaps outside our comfortable clique. Welcoming those who are different to us. This is what the kingdom looks like because this is what the king did. What the king still does. We need to be those, says Jesus, who look at the world not through the eyes of the world, but through the eyes of Christ. See, it's interesting, we won't have time to really look at this, but in chapter 10, which was also read for us, that little bit about the children, it's interesting, isn't it? why do the disciples rebuke people for bringing children to Jesus? Well, there could have been lots of reasons, but one of the things it seems to me is that they look at the children through the eyes of the world in that day and age. They had nothing to offer them. They had nothing to offer Jesus. They had no status at all. Why would you waste your time on them? They bring nothing to the party. Jesus says, you're still thinking exactly as the world thinks like that. You're still conceiving of greatness like that. You're still playing with status categories as the world has them then and has them now. But Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom. To such belongs the kingdom. It is not worldly status that secures us a place in God's kingdom. And being in God's kingdom will secure you no worldly status. As they'll discover very soon as Jesus goes to the cross. In God's kingdom, all are valued and all are valuable. Precisely because our identity and our status comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and that's where we're to look for it to root it and to find it secured and if we're to love each other as Christ calls us to love us we need to look at well first of all we need to look at each other in God's kingdom with the eyes of Christ look at each other in the church with the eyes of Christ as those who are uh, precious when I'm talking to a brother and a sister in Christ I'm talking to somebody for whom Christ died I'm talking to somebody in whom the Spirit of God is alive and active. I'm talking to somebody who's been given unique gifts by God to serve him and to serve one another. I'm talking to somebody in whom the living God is at work. I'm talking to somebody who one day, I love this phrase from C.S. Lewis, if you come across this quote, who one day will be so... um, so glorious in their perfected resurrection bodies. He says that if you were to see them um, now, as they will be then, you'd be tempted to fall at their feet and worship them. C.S. Lewis says this. um, He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. It's a lovely point, isn't it? Whoever it is we're talking to in the church, one day, if we could see them now as we'll see them then, we'd be tempted to worship them. And that's got to change the way we talk to each other. That's got to change the way we interact with each other. That's got to change the way we we welcome each other. That's got to expand our categories of those, uh, you know, who we want to um, uh, give of ourselves to and serve and, and, and befriend, hasn't it? And of course, we're to look at the world through the eyes of Christ and not through the eyes of the world. In that quote, Lewis goes on to say, there are no ordinary people. You have never spoken to a mere mortal, he says. Because of course, we're all made in God's image. Therefore, we're all precious to God, 
He created us all. And what's more, we're all heading for eternity, either an eternity with God or without God, but we're all heading for an eternity, Lewis says. And so, of course, we're to, that brings a profound gravity, doesn't it, to whoever we're talking to, whoever we're talking to. We're to welcome them with the status blindness, if that's a phrase, of Christ, that we might show them something about Christ and the way of his kingdom, that it is open to any and all. It doesn't work like the world works. That they might see how Christ loves all regardless of status, calls all regardless of status, offers salvation to all regardless of status. All of which is easier said than done. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was thinking about why is it that um, sometimes I find it difficult to welcome people who are not like me. And um, one of the things is I think my love of status. I read this, I thought it was right, but I did leave me thinking crumbs. Is that true of me? Uh, followers of Jesus are prepared to serve the, quotes nobodies of the world because they are so unconcerned about their own status. And I thought, yes, that's right. That's right, but gosh, that's not easy. That's easier said than done, isn't it? Well, it is for me anyway. I was thinking, why is it that I naturally, I naturally tend to move towards people who are like me? And I naturally tend to move towards people who I want to be like. Partly because it's easy, it's comfortable. I I guess, I I think we're going to probably have things in common. It's going to make for a very easy social interaction. But I think it's deeper than that. I think there is sometimes an idolatry in it. By which I mean that I am looking to this person for something that only God can provide. I'm looking for status in this person. I'm looking for significance and security and self-worth. In other words, why is it that I'm drawn to this particular person? Sometimes it's because, you know what, I think I'll gain in significance by being a friend of somebody who's significant. Does that that ring any bells or is it just me? You know, I think I'll gain something, um, some sort of prestige, if I'm known to be a friend of somebody who has prestige. Um... You know, I'll gain something life-giving about being invited to this dinner party or being allowed into this club, which this person gives me access to. Do you you see what I mean? There is something here about seeking something in this person that actually, really, only God provides. I find myself naturally moving towards those uh, who are like me, who I think, in one sense, offer me something. I worry what people think of me. Well, (laughs) I worry what people like me think of me. That their opinion of me matters more. And why is that? It's because I'm building, to some extent, my identity on being a friend of that kind of person. My sense of self, self-worth significance, whatever you want to call it, security, being a friend of that kind of person. And all of that is a barrier to seeking and serving people as I'm called to in God's kingdom. And so as I close, what's the antidote? Two things came to my mind. The first is I must always remember myself to be a child 
in this sense, embraced by a loving, glorious God. As one who had no, if you like, intrinsic status to attract the Lord Jesus Christ to me. I had nothing to offer him but my sin. And yet he came for me. He left the splendor of heaven for the stable floor and went from the stable floor to the cross for me. And there was nothing in me to attract him. And as I meditate on that, that will empower my ability to turn and embrace others, regardless of who they are. And secondly, I think it is to recall and to remember and to receive afresh the status, if you like, and the identity that Christ gives me as his child. To remember and to recall afresh, to be rooted in that status which God has bestowed on me. Precious, adopted child of God, with a new father, with a new family, with the Holy Spirit. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm an ambassador for Christ. You can multiply all these things as you go through the the New Testament. Bring these things to ourselves. This status that is ours purely because of who Christ is and what he has done, he gives it to us. And as I root myself, you see, as I root myself in the the status and the identity that Christ gives me, I'm free. I'm not looking for status from anyone else. So I'm free to serve anyone, regardless. I'm free to love all, regardless, because I'm not in this for what I get out of it. Because Christ is all, and he gives me all. I'm in this to serve as Christ served me. As I grasp who I am in Christ, I am empowered to fulfill his calling. And as I seek not the self-promotion that flows from status anxiety, but the self-sacrificial service that flows from our status security in Christ, then I am empowered to walk the way of Christ, which is the way of true greatness. Amen.